Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with WFIU's News Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. Today, we're talking with our guests about the new CDC eviction moratorium and what it means for Hoosier renters. The new moratorium halts eviction in counties with substantial or high levels of community transmission of COVID-19. And currently, all 92 counties in Indiana meet that requirement, according to CDC data reported daily. You can follow us on the show on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there. You can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you will be sending the questions to us to ask to four of our guests. Our guests today are Brandon Beeler, Housing Law, um, Housing Law Center Director, Indiana Legal Services, the Reverend Forrest Gilmore, Executive Director of the Shalom Community Center here in Bloomington, Amy Nelson, Executive Director of the Fair Housing Center of Central Indiana, and Fran Quigley, Clinical Professor and Director of Health and Human Rights Clinic for the Indiana University McKinney School of Law. Thank you all for being here with us today. Really appreciate uh, having such great guests with us. And I just want to start off the program by talking about what what COVID has meant. Uh, and I'm going to address this first to uh, Brandon what COVID-19 has meant to renters in Indiana and uh, why this moratorium is important. Hi, Bob. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, be here this afternoon. I appreciate it. Um, Certainly, yeah, renters have been hit really hard with COVID-19 and especially um, low-income Hoosier renters who are the primary client base that we serve. Um, have really suffered the greatest financial hardships um, with job loss and hourly wages lost um, throughout the past uh, you know year and a half, going on uh, two years now. Um, you know, as far as the um, the new moratorium or the the extension for the moratorium, um, you know, this has really been a this is critical for for our for Hoosier renters um, first and foremost, which the CDC has tried to narrowly direct this towards um, preventing the spread of COVID nineteen, and as we've seen and heard and hear reports every day of growing cases of the Delta variant and, and being spread throughout um, the state. 
um, you know, having people, the having renters having the ability to stay housed um, and be able to shelter in place, especially um, if they are contracting COVID and help prevent the spread. You know, that was really what the Supreme Court in their order at the end of June um, sort of discussed was, you know, the question is whether the CDC ex extended its authority. You know, the CDC, when they came out with this moratorium extension, really tried to narrow that to focus on these counties and focus it on a county by county basis to see where the spread is. I say also one really the critical reason why this has been so beneficial and something that tenants frankly need um, is because, you know, with these emergency rental assistance programs, which I'm sure we will talk about um, this hour, um, it's an unprecedented program from the federal level and it is just taking time to get those much needed funds to renters as well as landlords. So hopefully this this during this time, we're really hoping that uh, rental assistance can get into the hands of renters and landlords and uh, prevent a lot of evictions where um, again, there are federal dollars directed towards that. Amy, if we could go to you next for some opening comments about this. Sure. So Brandon laid out just so succinctly the problem, you know, to date. But one thing that the Fair Housing Center of Central Indiana has concerns about is the long-term impact. What does it mean by having an eviction, for instance, on your so-called tenant or even in some situations credit record? how that's going to follow people around for so many years to come as they seek new opportunities or even try to change into more affordable or more safe housing um, situations. And this is because of how tenant screening companies use data that they scrape from so many different types of court records that may not be an accurate, an accurate reflection of what occurred. For instance, here in Indianapolis, we have seen a number of landlords refuse to participate in the rental assistance programs. Consequently, then, those individuals um, who may have qualified then for those programs but had a landlord who refused to participate would probably be served an eviction. And that shouldn't uh, be the situation that then impacts their ability to move or find new housing in the future. And this is just one of the many concerns that the Fair Housing Center has. All right, I'm gonna ask Fran Quigley next to talk a little bit about it. And you know, from your perspective, what are some of the key elements to, to what's happening here with the evictions? Well, I just would like to, to echo what uh, Brandon and Amy have already said, that uh, it, this is a crisis um, and thank goodness we do have this moratorium and thank goodness the moratorium is still in place. Um, the last couple of weeks, uh, I've had the privilege of being alongside Brandon and his colleagues in Marion County uh, eviction courts. And you see folks, um, we talked to someone uh, the other day, she brought in her 11-day-old baby uh, and had to be her second day in a row in an eviction court. Other folks are enduring very serious illnesses, including COVID, with themselves and their families. Other folks have been uh, laid off or have their hours reduced. And it's, it's simply no exaggeration to say that is repeated across this state by hundreds of thousands of people, and they would be on the streets, uh, but for the eviction moratorium. And uh, all of them are still struggling to get access to the rental assistance, which I know we'll talk about. But, but as Brandon said, uh, thank goodness that appears to be uh, coming down the pike. We hope it will be and, uh, and get folks uh, uh, housed in the short term. And then we can address, as, as Amy said, these these long-term issues that are they're still going to be there, even if we can keep these folks in their homes for the for the next month or two. All right. Thank you. And our next voice is uh, Reverend Forrest Gilmore, who's been on our program 
many times before. Forrest, uh, how has this affected the population of people who you work with on a regular basis? Yeah, thanks, Bob, for having me and um, giving me a chance to, to speak on this really important topic. I think one of the things that we've already seen is the uh, challenge of the last year where we saw street homelessness um, reach numbers we've never seen before in our community in the winter. And that's uh, just uh, just an enormous uh, challenge to, to um, have gone through that and saw, saw how COVID affected that. But I also think that we actually learned quite a bit from the 20, um, 2008 recession um, about how it impacted uh, homelessness. And uh, what we know is that um, that homelessness takes um, that there's a lag uh, between the actual recession and when the impact starts to happen. So we're like to, likely to see a peak of, of homelessness over the ne next several years, maybe even peaking in 2023. And uh, that's, I think, particularly frightening is that even though the economy is starting to come out of this situation, evictions and, and homelessness are likely to continue to grow over the next uh, several years. And they're anticipating as much as a, almost a, economic roundtables are predicting as much as a 49% increase in chronic homelessness um, over the next several years, which I find uh, very frightening. Amy, perhaps you can start by just talking about the, the rental assistance program. I'm curious, um, you know, if we can talk about how much money Indiana got for that and how much has already been sent to families and how much more is still left to, left to hand out. Well, the rental assistance programs have been provided to date through what we call CARES Act 1 and CARES Act 2 federal appropriations. And these are appropriations that specifically identified how much money the state or in the situation of Indianapolis would receive for rental assistance funds. Um, in the first CARES Act, Indianapolis was set aside um, separately from the state of Indiana. So there was two programs then running here in the state of Indiana. On CARES Act two, the state did allow um, other cities to have their own programs that they have been running. So it really depends upon you know, where you live, your particular community, that, that sort of program. What we have seen, however, is that at the state level is that there is a significant amount of unobligated rental assistance funds. The state had received about $372 million in rental assistance funds at, through that CARES Act II funding. And at least as of the end of uh, the middle of June had only been able to obligate about 10 million of that. I know that the state is working uh, to try to remedy the situation, but we do want to make sure that people are aware and apply for the rental assistance programs because there are funds available and individuals should take that opportunity to apply to see if they qualify, they can get funds because under the state's program, people could get up to 12 months of rental assistance help and possibly utility assistance help as well. Depending upon the city that they live in, uh, they may have um, other types of rental assistance programs as well. But why, why is the process going so slow? I was even reading about in some other states where the money has sort of been appropriated, perhaps in ways that it wasn't intended. 
Well, I think that would be a question, you know, for the state uh, as to why these funds we are, you know, we're an advocate. We've been working to try to get the word out about these funds to make sure that people are aware, helping individuals and in, in getting to the right programs and um, uh, how they can apply and the process, you know, for doing such. I think that we have seen, you know, nationally that uh, some of these programs uh, that have been set up have had kind of some onerous barriers to completion. You know, very often uh, individuals may require internet or the assistance of somebody if they don't have internet. Uh, they may not be aware of places that they can go that could assist them in completing their applications. They may not be aware of the programs, outreach, social media, things like that may not have reached them. And then some of the requirements of the programs may be more overwhelming for folks who may not have easy uh, access to things like copies of their lease or items such as that, or being able to sign a declarations form, such as under the CDC eviction moratorium, which I'm sure that we're gonna talk about as well. We did a show on this uh, very early in the pandemic, and we, we did have some representatives from uh, apartment associations on here and people representing um, landlords. And we don't today, but I, I guess I want to ask as a follow-up to what Amy was just saying about the idea for the, this rental assistance fund, a lot of that would wind up in the pockets of, of people who are rent, are renting properties to others, right? So it seems like it would be in the best interest of government to put together the people who are renters and the people who are um, renting them properties to try to continue to, to help the whole system work properly. I don't know who I'm addressing that to. Maybe Brandon, can you, can you say, am I, am I reading that correctly or am I, am I missing something? No, I, I think that's that's exactly accurate. Again, that's it's it's money to um, you know repay the rent for however long. And again, each program is a little bit different. Um, I mean, I think Amy was was correct on explaining some of the challenges that uh, tenants and frankly landlords face in trying to keep track because there are you know there's the statewide program and then there are six other programs throughout the state and knowing first of all where you qualify. We see tenants every single day who come to our office that. You know, again, as much as we're maybe in the news, knowing these are out there and following it, um, tenants who frankly do not know. Um, with and to and what Brandon referenced earlier, we've been the past two weeks in small claims courts and eviction courts here in Marion County, um, and there's really a lot of confusion from the landlord side as well. And we've been able, you know, it's been very small, certainly a drop in the bucket statewide for sure. But trying to just get everyone on on par and on page, because again, we're an organization that's tracking this a little bit more closely. Um, there's been just a lot of confusion about whether, you know, some landlords believe, for instance, that there's some strings attached to the funds that they may be, you know, forced to house a tenant who's maybe causing problems on the property or things like that. So trying to just de debunk some of that has been some of the really rather work we've done in bringing the parties together and um, applying some of the lag time. Again, this is an unprecedented um, program from the federal level. And so that, again, the, the time from getting the money from the federal level to the state and to these local programs is, is certainly part of it. The other part too is getting both parties um, when they're not in court or when they're not together, there has to be some sort of verification from each side, which can also cause a lag. I can just speak from, you know, anecdotally from my experience, you know, I have a number of tenant clients that 
had applied for different programs back in May, and you know they're still waiting for assistance. So they have pending eviction cases that we you know, I anticipate being resolved through rental assistance. But you know it's been May since their applications, and here we are, you know, the 13th of August, still waiting for them to get paid. And fortunately, in these experiences, because maybe because an attorney is involved in this, we've been able to kind of quell the landlord and trying to work together to receive these these funds. All right, we're talking about the uh, CDC eviction moratorium and what it means for Hoosiers today. We have four guests. That was Brandon Beeler, Housing Law Center Director of Indiana Legal Services. We're also joined by the Reverend Forrest Gilmore with uh, Beacon and the Shalom Community Center, Amy Nelson, Executive Director of Fair Housing Center of Central Indiana, and Fran Quigley, Clinical Professor and Director of Health and Human Rights Clinic, Indiana University McKinney School of Law. You can uh, join us on the program in a couple of ways. You can tweet us at uh, at Noon Edition. So we're on Twitter. And you can email us news at indianapublicmedia.org. I'm really interested in following up with uh, Brandon and, and Fran Quigley about, and others, if you have the firsthand experience, about what it's like in these eviction courts. Because there were a couple of days there where the eviction courts were quite busy um, before the moratorium was extended. Can you sort of give us a sense of of what it was like, you know, in the in the courtroom? What what kinds of people were going in there? What were the what were the arguments like? Uh, what were the outcomes like? Sure. Well, I'll just want to also point out that actually eviction courts have been busy even before <laughs> the, uh, the the two days we had where there was no moratorium, at least in the past last week. Um, you know, it's it's really sort of mixed throughout the state. Um, you know, the Supreme Court has put guidance up for courts. There's been no court orders that direct courts on how to approach them uniform in a uniform manner. Um, but some courts, for instance, will 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 provide um, sort of a blanket notice of rights to tenants and landlords as they're sitting there before their hearings, letting people know about the CDC moratorium and allowing uh, the tenants to make that um, to make that declaration if they qualify. Other courts, and frankly, even within the same county, other courts are not doing that. And I've witnessed tenants who are being evicted for non-payment of rent simply because they didn't know that this that the CDC moratorium protected them. Um, so we're really just seeing a, a mixture of it. But as far as being on the ground, and Fran can certainly speak to this as well, um, probably Amy and uh, maybe Reverend Gilmore as well, you know, what we see in court is what we've seen at least the past couple of weeks is we've seen two sides of the part of both parties being frustrated. They don't, there's a lot of confusion and a misunderstanding and, you know, a lot of folks just, you know, trying to, you know, just kind of avoid it thinking maybe it's just going to go, go away. But when we get them together and frankly, when they're the landlord and tenant are sitting there, we usually have been able to get to an agreement at some point about helping them apply together, letting, you know, we have some access that we can inform the indie rent folks that, that they're applying and try to get some sort of, um, some sort of notice to both of them that that the rental assistance application is going forward. And again, frankly, letting people know that these exist. Brand? Sure. I would just add that exactly what Brandon said, that, that this is a, a program, the emergency rental assistance, which really benefits the landlords arguably even more than the tenants, because that, that way they're going to get paid in a way that they, that they wouldn't have gotten paid probably with these uh, big arrearages that a lot of folks have. But um, if I could be blunt about it, I think in terms of getting the rental assistance dollars out the door, as Brandon said, there's a lot of frustration in the, with, the, with the courts, with the advocates, with tenants, with landlords. 
I mean, I don't think that our elected officials in Indiana at the state or local levels are doing anywhere near a good enough job. Um, I know that there's not been an infrastructure to roll out these these kind of dollars and the folks who are working on it are working as hard as they can. But in talking about this with a student recently, the, the analogy is if, if we had widespread fires across the state of Indiana and they were displacing people from their homes, if they were endangering health and lives, even though we don't have an infrastructure in place, all hands would be on deck. We'd mobilize the resources to, to make sure that the, you know, those fires got put out and, and that we were able to, to take care of these families. Well, that kind of fire is spreading across Indiana. We've got 100,000 plus people who are at risk of losing their homes and, and being put into the streets and, and having their health, physical and mental health be uh, at risk as a result. And I don't think we're doing a good enough job to to address it as an emergency and to make sure these dollars get to uh, the families so they could stay in the homes, get to the landlords so that they can, uh, you know, get the income that they need and, and keep these folks in their homes. We, we I think we can and should demand much better from uh, officials at the state level and, and at, our, at our city levels as well. Let me just say, we totally appreciate Blunt on this show. So thank you very much for that. And Forrest Gilmore. I can always bring that. <laughs> Forrest has been known to be a little blunt on our show too. So I do want to follow up with Forrest and, and ask about, you know, that same thing about the public response to to this. Why, why aren't we seeing the kind of urgency that, you know, I know that, you know, you have urgency in your work every day, trying to, trying to make sure that people have the, the necessities uh, and can, you know, live their best life. You've talked before about about some things that happen with with local government or and I'm sure you have your frustrations with state government. You know what? When can we expect that we can um, maybe get government on the side of uh, well, on the on can we improve the services of government and how soon and and what's it going to take? Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's a major question. And, and it it is. I'm sorry for that. That no, was not a good question. It's fine, it's yeah. fine to ask me. That, that's that's a blunt. Is that's a? I don't know. I think it's a good blunt response, right? <laughs> but but um, the, I I think one of the biggest things we're seeing on the state funding, um, and we've seen it from the very beginning, is that it's a very confusing process that feels very hard to access. Not so much at the first entry door to it. But beyond that, that people are having long delays in responses, um, that uh, people are getting confused about what they're eligible and what they're not eligible for. And uh, so it takes a it takes a long time for people to actually get um, that system set up. Just as an example, we had we were given some rental assistance funding to work with the state on through a but they controlled the state controlled the portal for that. And um and uh, so we just had to wait until people were referred to us. And we often had long, long waits uh, between those uh, times when people applied. And we actually did get referrals if we saw those referrals at all, at all. And again, I do sympathize with our state government and the people who are on the ground doing it. I, I know many of them care about this very much and are working very hard and are shocked in the middle of this um, you know, on, in some ways, unprecedented event and trying to deal with that. And yet those are some of the challenges I'm seeing uh, out there every day. And, I, and I'll add, too, that, you know, rental assistance um, is super important for preventing evictions and, and more and also preventing people from entering the shelter system, which is really, really important. Uh, there's lots of data about how that can be uh, impactful and, and affect people. 
But one of the things we're seeing, because this pandemic has been so long, you know, we're looking at 18 months now since I think March when it started to really have its impact here, um, was uh, is that people's leases are starting to expire. And so, or have expired, and then landlords are just choosing not to extend those leases. And so we're seeing people not so much being evicted, uh, but we're seeing people who just are not having their leases renewed, and so they're losing their homes that way. Now, Forrest, we've also talked about encampments here in Monroe County, and the CDC did not extend any protections for encampments of unhoused people uh, on city property or elsewhere. What are the dangers of evicting large encampments that happen to be on public property during the pandemic? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing that um, I mean, there's always a danger for an evicting an, an encampment. Uh, probably the biggest thing that it does is it um, disperses people in a way that we can't, you know, access them or support them or find them or connect to them. Um, it often leads to lots of lost things that they, um, you know, have been using for their survival, um, and uh, so that's a big challenge. But it also can, in some claim, it can even contribute to community spread. I think that was the the CDC's uh, argument: is that by moving people around and, and having them shift, it actually can uh, spread COVID around the community. Okay, Sarah. Well, I have I'll have another question that. Uh, that I want to ask. It's from Ron Rankin. It came over Twitter. What can folks who are not at risk of eviction do to help at-risk renters in Bloomington, if anything? Can they donate? Can they volunteer? Um, maybe Forrest, you're the best to answer that, but but we're not talking just about Bloomington. Maybe there are some answers from the rest of you. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a good question and a hard one to answer. I mean, we are um, thanks to some funding from a number of sources, Jack Hopkins, Sophia Travis, um, as well as the uh, CDBG funding, uh, doing some local rental assistance to help um, uh, prevent, you know, um, uh, evictions to help support people financially. And we'd absolutely welcome uh, donations targeted specifically at rental assistance. So that's one way that folks could help at least locally uh, uh, supporting people here in our city. I will agree, you know, and overall, not just in obviously Monroe County or, or statewide, we have seen you know, it helping if, if a lot of churches, frankly, and other uh, faith groups and, and places of worship have done some private rental assistance that obviously can, um, through donations, kind of take away some of that red tape. But one push that our office has really um, been trying to encourage every county in the state um, is engaging every bar association. Most bar associations um even prior to COVID, have, you know, a monthly or sometimes a weekly um, talk to a lawyer line or things like that. So we're really um, encouraging uh, attorneys um, to, to, to engage in that. There's a free statewide training available on the Indiana State Bar Association's website that any attorney or even non-attorney can access and get a little bit of training on some of the basics of landlord-tenant law, as well as there's parts about rental assistance that kind of go more in depth about how to apply and who to, who you apply to and what you need. Um, we, I've seen, I will just say in the past couple of weeks, we've expanded that to also including some of these more, the services again, directed towards rental assistance um, and trying to get that. So I would say, look at your local bar associations. I know that the state 
and the Supreme Court is really trying to engage them as well. So if you are a lawyer or even a volunteer, there may be an opportunity to, to go to a court or uh, to assist tenants in some way um, under these kind of programs. Brand, Brand, quickly. I, yeah, I know. Go ahead, sir. Well, I was just going to say, I, Fran, I know you've been tracking a lot of these numbers. I'm curious if the data shows, have things gotten any better, you know, over the summer? Is people have been able to maybe get back to work? Are, were they able to, you know, catch up on their rent at all? Or, or how many people could still potentially be evicted if the, if the moratorium ends? Um, I, I, the numbers that we have seen, it's, it's all, this is, you know, people struggle like this in a, in a pretty hidden way. So the numbers are never very definitive. And there's so many factors that could mean someone staying in and finding another place to stay, even if they have to move from where they are. But the numbers you hear is as many as a hundred thousand people across the state. Um, and, uh, that's, that's frightening, right? That, that would be a disaster. And so, um, and that, and the question that that Bob had asked before about advocacy, I want to kind of, if I could, pass it over to to Amy because I've seen Amy advocate directly to lawmakers, and and I just want to say that we do have this amazing opportunity right now with tens of millions of dollars in rental assistance that is out there available, um, but it is not yet getting to where it needs to go in terms of of, of folks being able to stay in their homes and landlords getting uh, paid the the rent that they're owed. So. Um, if I if I could, I'd like to pass over to Amy to to talk about what folks can do in terms of you know reaching out to their lawmakers who could put pressure on the state and local agencies to to do this better and faster. Thanks for the handoff, Fran. Yeah, this is uh, a a really pressing time in which folks can take action in other ways. And that is through contacting their state legislators, their city county council members, township offices, items such as that. But the Indiana General Assembly has for several years now passed a series of laws that have really eroded the tenant rights aspect under landlord tenant law. We've seen this through them passing laws that have greatly impacted the ability of cities to conduct effective rental inspection programs. We've seen them pass uh, laws that have taken away the rights of cities to be able to mandate affordable housing development. And that was in retaliation to the city of Bloomington, who was looking at that. We've seen them try to take away some fair housing based protections, which are allowed, you know, in other states. And then we saw, of course, this legislative session in which the Republican run General Assembly overrode their own Republican governor's veto from last year of SCA 148, which preempted all local housing code. And so what we have right now is uh, is a landlord-tenant law here in Indiana and many other consumer-based protections, but in particular landlord-tenant law that overwhelmingly favors landlords. In fact, NBR uh, a couple years ago identified Indiana as the state most friendliest to landlords. So we need people contacting their Indiana state senators and representative in order to demand housing change, that there be a comprehensive review of Indiana's landlord tenant and other housing laws to make needed changes because these laws have always been passed in a rushed way where it's never been fully evaluated as to what the impact is going to be on communities or on uh, renters or 
for other housing consumers. And we need to demand that they take action and work to provide more renter-based protections. Um, there's so many protections that are provided in all of our neighboring states that are not given to renters here in Indiana. What are some examples of those? Some, some uh, examples of renter-based protections that um, would be that should be considered at least moderate when you, when it comes to politics. One uh, one that the states around us all have is the ability for tenants to withhold rent when there are significant health and safety type repair needs. Here in Indiana, if the furnace isn't being fixed in the middle of winter, a tenant has no rights to withhold rent in order to try to get the landlord to move and to get those repairs made. They have to keep paying rent. States around us, and it's in different forms, some have where a it can be put into um, some sort of safety savings deposit or security type account. Others have court run accounts that do this. Here in Indiana, we have nothing like that. We also need to look at eviction sealing and eviction expungement, as well as right of counsel laws here in Indiana. Uh, here, we are seeing some states start to move in these areas because of the eviction pandemic. And this is where, um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, we're gonna have so many renters with evictions on their records that are going to follow them around. And those evictions may not have been justified. They may have been retaliatory. They may have been discriminatory. They may have been response repairs being made. It may have been a way to force somebody out because they wanted to increase the rent and get somebody else in. And those should follow them around. And states are starting, some states and communities are starting to put in place eviction sealing and eviction expungement in certain situations. And then every tenant going to eviction court needs to have an attorney there. Statistics just overwhelmingly show that housing providers, landlords going to a court will be represented 90% of the time. And tenants just are not represented at that level. Indiana Legal Services, some of these other programs are trying to do some great work, but they need more funding in order to be able to effectively help people that are in need. City of Indianapolis is starting to put um, attorneys in courts, but we need this to be statewide. I guess I want to follow up with Fran Quigley on, on that and putting attorneys in, into these uh, eviction courts and, and elsewhere. Um, could you talk a little bit about the, the health and human rights clinic that you run and, and what opportunities are there for law students at the McKinney School to get involved in, in um, issues such as this? Yeah, thank you. Our Health and Human Rights Clinic at, at uh, IU McKinney Law School is um, a clinic where student, law students will essentially represent their first ever clients um, and get the experience that they need in uh, direct client relationship and advocacy, etc. So we have been privileged for many years now to, to partner with Brandon and his colleagues at Indiana Legal Services, where, as Amy said, Indiana Legal Services just provides so much help for so many people all across the state of Indiana um, and is responding, you know, so uh, so ambitiously to this to the housing crisis that we're that we're in now. So um, our students will will do that in terms of direct representation of of clients referred to us from ILS. Uh, we will be in the uh, Marion County eviction court side by side with Brandon and his colleagues, uh, where the students get that that terrific experience. But we also have the ability, and students are certainly uh, eager to embrace some of these long-term, big-picture policy fixes that, that Amy's identified, that, that we are a state that needs to do much better in terms of protecting the rights of tenants. 
and th that our courts can do a lot. Uh, the courts can even right now can press pause on these evictions. Sometimes what people need is the time to to get their finances together, the time to get this rental assistance money, uh, the time to find another safe and secure place for themselves and their families to to live. And the courts have the ability to to slow the process down so that uh, tenants get the chance to do that. So we've uh, had the chance to to start helping advocate for that, and and it is incredibly informed by the experience being side by side with with Brandon and his colleagues uh, right in court with uh, the folks who are, are really struggling with uh, facing the idea of being homeless next week if the, if the eviction goes through. And can you explain how the current moratorium is different than the other ones? Um, well, if I can, I'm gonna, maybe this is my theme of being both blunt and passing <laughs> things off, but Brandon is, is the expert that I turn to on, on the difference between the moratoriums. Uh, I will say that, um, thankfully, the difference isn't so significant that it, for folks in, that we're seeing across Indiana that, um, uh, as, you, as you said, I think in your introduction, this is applying to, to everyone here in the short term, uh -huh. and, uh, yeah. and hopefully what it means in the, in the reality of the folks that we're talking with is it does keep them in their homes for a few more weeks. Yeah. Brandon, do you want, do you want to explain it a little more? I'm just specifically curious about how it's then based on, you know, the positivity rates and things and, and how that could affect people and their eligibility. Absolutely, Sarah. So, you know, to, to take a, a step back and going back to when the um, the eviction moratorium was challenged at the Supreme, at the United States Supreme court, um, and they and they issued a ruling at the end of June, uh, right when they extended the, the the moratorium through July 31st. Um, and Justice Kavanaugh, in a concurring opinion, in a very short one, seemed to suggest that potentially the Centers for Disease Control extended or be, went beyond their authority um, in in this, but they were going to leave it intact because of the disruption and what it would cause um, to take it off so quickly for tenants who are relying on this, again, as we've mentioned on the show, Edward's talked about waiting for these critical uh, resources of rental assistance and others to get to the tenants and the landlords. Um, so what, what the new order does, or the extension, or however we're looking at this, the CDC tried to really narrowly address that concern, and that is, I believe, why we are at this county-by-county kind of analysis. Now, I certainly cannot explain the math or the science. I've looked at the footnote nine of how they're allocating, how they're uh, determining when your county is at that level, but the CDC is doing that algorithm on their website. You can go on to the CDC site to see if your county um, is covered. So um, I think that that's the, that's the purpose, again, to show that this order is actually directed toward preventing the spread of COVID-19, um, again, because we're seeing these rates goes up and, you know, when, while they're going up, again, that's when this first came into effect last September was for that. So that's, I believe, why, and again, I know it's very confusing, and if you read the order, you know, to figure out if your county is, it, it's a lot of data you have to pull of your own, but the CDC's tried to really do a good job putting that together, and that's why it's really to try to, re, you know, resist those legal challenges um, to the CDC, whether it, they have exceeded their authority in, in issuing it. All right, we got a, a comment sent in, sort of a comment and a question um, that is, it says, how do we get information to elderly about eviction protections? When people don't meet quality of care in a nursing home or assisted living, they are in danger of becoming homeless. Not sure which one of you might want to take that, but 
Um, Amy, yeah. Uh, a, a good organization is through AARP here in the state of Indiana. They have been, uh, they are part of the Hoosier Housing Needs Coalition, which is a group of organizations across the state of Indiana that are trying to get more policy changes within the Indiana General Assembly. And AARP is an active member and has been also trying to get information out on the rental assistance programs. That may be a venue that um, could be used to try to reach individuals who are elderly. Forrest, what about this? Have you seen this as a problem? We've, yeah, I mean, we've, uh, one of the things I think that shocked us this year um, in particular is we've just noticed um, some some upticking in the in the age of people experiencing homelessness this last year in, in particular we found a couple of um, uh, camps actually that that have had some uh, people with um, uh, who are older or um, had in some cases severe disability and disabilities in a wheelchair sleeping outside in camps so so we were absolutely worried about that kind of that scenario and, and just noticing some, uh, you know, increasing in, in older, uh, older, older folks becoming homeless. And, and that's obviously a, a major worry. I wanted to dig deeper with you about uh, the information you talked about earlier about the, you know, how 20, by 2023, the numbers are just going to be, you know, increasingly going going up. I mean, what's that based on and, and what can we do about it? Yeah. One of the things that we saw is, um, is we saw that occur in after the 2008 recession um, that, that homelessness um, continued to increase um, several years after the recession. One of the things that we saw, you know, and actually it peaked uh, three years after the recession in 2011 is when homelessness uh, crested. And so, so we we are imagining something similar like that to happen now. One of the things too we saw is in the 2008 recession in a study of in Los Angeles is that 10% of people who lost their jobs uh, became homeless following that that an unemployment uh, situation. And so, so those are just some of the things that we saw just from a recession in 2008. And this recession it was worse and, and more significant. And so projections are that we'll see, um, you know, the numbers as much as doubling from what we saw in 2008 and through 2011 around that recession. Yeah, so I think I want, I want to ask, you know, ask you again, but also all of our panelists. I mean, if we can see that that is a likely outcome of this, we can see two years down the road. Uh, what, you know, what can we be, what can we be doing about it? And maybe Amy, you know, she talked about some things we could lobby the legislature, the legislature could be lobbied about. I mean, if we know or we we suspect that's going to be the outcome in two years, what can we do in the next two years that maybe mitigates that? I think. Oh, sorry. Oh, I would just follow up again. I mean, some of this is not super, is not rocket science as much as it's just we need to get the resources out there and available to people and to remember that the resources are going to be needed for the next two and three years at least and, and not to just suddenly be like, okay, the pandemic's over, the economy's doing well, we can stop this assistance. We need to keep, uh, keep uh, you know, pressing on the gas for several years and uh, remember that this is 
going to continue and to grow, um, even though for a lot of us, we may feel like we've gotten out of it already. Fran? Yes, I just would like to echo what Reverend Gilmore said. This and, and, and folks like Brandon and Amy have been working on this for years. That The eviction crisis did not start with the pandemic, and it's not going to end with the pandemic. We have you know, when you look at the folks who are being evicted, sometimes they are seniors on, on limited income. Sometimes they're folks who are wearing their uniform for the food service job they have or the home health care job that they have. They just simply don't make enough money to afford housing in the state of Indiana. And the data collected by folks at Prosperity Indiana and the National uh, Low Income Housing Center and, and others have uh, have have prove this again and again, we just have nowhere near enough affordable housing across the state. And that's true in the cities and in, in the rural communities as well. And when folks are eligible for um, assistance voucher that could help them pay the rent, only one out of every four families that are eligible can get it. So we have an affordable housing crisis that far predated the pandemic. It's going to be there afterward. We've got people who are seniors, people who are working hard, people with families and they just simply, you, you look at what their income is and, and what the rent is, because sometimes um, low quality housing oftentimes is not cheap housing. And, and people just aren't able to make the ends meet. And even once we get through this crisis and the, even if the rental assistance gets distributed the way it should, that, that's not going to change what the situation was before the pandemic. And it's going to be afterward where we just have many hundreds of thousands of people in this state who cannot afford to be safely and securely housed. So we need to have more, much more uh, rental uh, long-term stable assistance for these folks and much more uh, public and subsidized housing for them. So I, I know I've seen this asked in other places before, but I'm curious what you all think in terms of is the moratorium just putting off the inevitable than in terms of folks who are going to end up getting evicted? I don't believe so. I think that, again, as we, I know we probably talked to Nauseam about it a bit, but, you know, the, the timing it's taking to get rental assistance to the tenants and landlords to cover these arrearages, again, up to 12 months for some programs at this point. And then, in fact, just to kind of, I don't know if we've said this yet, but for many of the state programs, maybe all, I don't have up-to-date information as of right now, but there is still another round of funding coming through for these programs um, through the which came through the American Rescue Plan Act that was passed in March. So those funds in themselves have not reached most of our state programs. So there is funding out there that should hopefully, and at that point I should say that the Treasury has allowed that to be up to 15 months of rent, so that will exceed the 12 months and then adding on other sources, whether private sources of assistance if folks are over 15 months, um, could be really beneficial. Because I think that, you know, when we, we are seeing obviously a lot of these not these lease non-renewal issues as well, because landlords are like, well, you haven't paid, we don't know if you can pay, and rental assistance is taking forever to verify whether we're going to get the funds. And I think that would, you know, again, I think it's really as time is critical. And I know just from my conversations and with some folks in this group, but also um, with some state leaders, you know, they're aware of the timing issue. And I know everyone's really trying to work on that. And so hopefully it's, it shouldn't be inevitable. It should be a point where, again, there's funds to cover up to and over a year worth of rent. And as I'm, again, I should say, recently experiencing with a lot of clients really starting in mid-July, um, jobs are coming back. Folks are starting to get jobs again who have been unemployed for six months to over a year due to the pandemic. Um, so we are seeing folks who are able to go forward and pay going forward. They just cannot pay those arrears, which is exactly why the rental assistance programs were, were established. 
I think it's also important to remember that eviction is the end result of a number of other housing related problems. And Indiana had an eviction crisis long before the pandemic. The pandemic has only exasperated it. We had an affordability problem before the pandemic. We had a substandard housing problem before the pandemic. And of course, we also have had a housing discrimination problem during the before the pandemic. The pandemic just made everything much, much worse. And the end result of that is again, that we need to have systemic change occur. And so we need very often when we are in the state house and advocating on public policy issues, we hear from legislators that they don't hear uh, their constituents calling to complain about these particular problems. And so we need folks speaking up there in Bloomington, you have a excellent representative in Matt Pierce who commonly speaks out for tenants on housing issues, but we need to have more legislators doing that. And so my call to action here before we end today is please reach out, find out who, if you don't know who your representative or senator is, there's um, lots of tools online. You can contact our office and we could get that information you know, to you. And to make those calls, make those emails, we're going to have an election coming up. Make sure that housing questions are part of candidate forums as to how legislators here in our state have voted on previous bills and how they look at addressing the housing crisis that's in our state. I want to ask every one of you for a, a call to action. But first, I have one question that came in from a listener that is very basic. If someone gets a notice in Bloomington, or I would expand that out to elsewhere, that they're facing eviction, what's the first thing they should do? Brandon? Sure. You know, the first thing they should do is, again, see, you know, just like I start with this point that, you know, a notice from your landlord is not, um, you know, you cannot be evicted or forcibly, I should say, removed from your home without a court order. So what we really first and frankly tell folks to do is to try to open the line of communication with their landlord, understand the issue. If there's a way to remedy it, work together. If it's a non-payment issue, work together to try to get rental assistance, because um, if it's just a notice, like a letter from the landlord, you know, trying to communicate with the landlord to mitigate and to stop um, the case from an eviction case being filed, because as Amy um, really well pointed out earlier, that we don't have eviction ceiling. So the filing itself, even if it is able to be resolved, um, can harm the tenant from finding future affordable housing, which we've established is pretty limited throughout the state. So first and foremost, we say try to communicate with your landlord to resolve whatever issue. Uh, second would be certainly to try to contact um, legal aid, our office, legal services, if they qualify, or um, other legal aids. There's a lot of community and or, excuse me, county legal aids um, around as well uh, to see if they can also um, help and try to remedy this. I will say finally, if there's a hearing, if it's a notice for a hearing, strongly encouraging the tenant to show up. I can't express and I know that, you know, tenants going to court without attorneys is very scary. And again, we should really work on that would issues like that and, and an expansion of right to counsel would certainly help the clients we serve. But going to court because you can risk a default and risk getting evicted without even having your chance to explain what's going on or just again to be in front of that judge, that neutral, supposedly neutral body to try to resolve issues. Those are kind of the knee-jerk quick advice. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, in the last minute we have Frank Quigley, a call to action. Would like to echo Amy's uh, call to uh, reach out to state lawmakers, but also to federal lawmakers. On, on the federal level, we treat housing in two different ways: as a human right or a wealth building tool. We put a lot more federal dollars, our tax dollars, into the wealth building side. Corporate landlord subsidies, 
wealthy homeowner subsidies. If we can readjust that, if our members of Congress, our senators can adjust that and, and make the uh, housing assistance available to low-income and middle-income folks who need it, we don't have to have homelessness and we don't have to have evictions. Those priorities can be changed at the federal level and our Indiana officials can, can be the ones to lead the way. We just need to, to demand that. Boris, 30 seconds. I just want to encourage people. I mean, what's been said has been wonderful, and I want to just encourage people to support local organizations that are dealing with the crisis. Uh, obviously, I work for Beacon, and and we would, uh, we're both working in homeless prevention and in homeless services, and encourage people to both financially uh, and with their time support our organization and others like us. All right, Brandon, I'm going to give you 30 seconds if you've got one last call to action. Oh goodness. Um, I think that I just say try to get involved. Again, I'm from a legal perspective. I would say there's able to you know involved with your local bar association. I think we also our our clients would really benefit from some uniformity um, throughout the court system. Whether that's you know, again hopefully from a statewide perspective to have some sort of time and again ensuring that resources that tenants are informed of their resources um, prior to going forward with an eviction hearing. Uh, that would be kind of the call there. Okay, that's it. We're out of time. Thank you, Brandon. Beeler, Forrest Gilmore, Amy Nelson, and Fran Quigley. For my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, producers Holden Abshear and Benton Boutier, and engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is WFIU Bloomington with translators W270BH1019 Bloomfield, Bloomington, W264AL100.7 Columbus, W269BU1017 French Lick, W255BG989 Greensburg, 